On this episode of Year One, we chat to Lana, co-founder and CEO of Daycabiza, which turns communications and trainings into entertaining games for companies. Alana is an open, transparent, forward-thinking entrepreneur, and you will find her comments and thoughts insightful. Sit back, buckle up, and enjoy the ride. Welcome to Year One, hosted by me, Dio Klopis, and my good friend, Satish Bala. On Year One, we speak to early-stage founders, business owners, and entrepreneurs about the highs and lows of the early years, the challenges and rewards, and everything else in between. So, without any further ado, Let's get into this week's conversation. So, Alana, before you tell us about your business and what it's about, I'm curious to know what was that aha moment for you? What was the moment where you said, you know what? I'm going to carve my own path. I'm going to pursue my own dreams. I'm not going to work for a boss. What was that for you? <laughs> I don't know if it was an exact moment, but there was a moment when I decided to start working on what eventually became Dekabesa. And that moment happened when I was sitting in my office in New York, there was about 30 plus people and everyone stopped what they were doing to play this live interactive game, which was not dissimilar to something my eventual co-founder and I had built for a different client before. So we just looked at each other and we're like, oh my God, there's something happening here, which is super interesting. And because we had the luxury of working together in the same office, we started carving out an hour here, an hour there, eight hours there to, to work on the concept and the idea. And while we were doing that, I think we were just learning a ton. And I think that for me was really the moment when I'm like, okay, there's something here. And it, not only was the idea great and something we continuously believed in, but just the process of starting something was so different and hard in a way that felt really enjoyable after doing what felt like a similar thing for a while. And then tell me, so your business is called Day Kabi. Tell us about the Day, name. Where, where did that Day, come from? Day Kabeza. So the name came from our other co-founder, who eventually became our other co-founder, Norby, and one of his creative partners. Uh, we were thinking of names. So we were originally building for Spanish-speaking audience kind of an experience that was meant for the general public. We've visited since, but meant for the Spanish-speaking audience. And Decabesa translates to on its head, which means kind of upside down, but in a fun way. And so many of the things that we've done, we kind of, we chose that name because we liked it. But as we kept working, we realized how it fit in so many other ways. Like I moved from New York to Mexico, which is like kind of backward. I started building a company in a country I've never lived in before. Also kind of backward. We were building a product before we had money. Most people don't recommend that. Like, it's, it's, so I think, you know, in retrospect, I'm kind of retrofitting in like more meaning than we had when we originally chose the name, but yeah. It's like this. In the fun part. Like the, the story the happened. Fun part is important. <laughs> and then once you guys named the company, you built the story to fit into the name. With all it was me, not, not intentionally, but <laughs> yeah, it kind of happened. Exactly. Now, I know you from New York and Blipper is an AR shop, but were you technical always? This is a very technical solution. How much of the fear of what you didn't know was there in the early days? Time. It. I didn't know 
anything. I don't think about starting a business. Yes, I was a part of a large a startup that grew really fast while I was there, which I think was an invaluable lesson to have. And interestingly, a lot of people that I used to work with have gone on to start their own businesses. I think there's a lot to be said about that. Maybe the type of people they hired or really just kind of the firsthand look of what it's like to be growing a tech company. But I was not technical. I worked very closely with the tech teams on solutions that we would deliver, whether they were the products themselves or something custom for a client. But I've taken a few coding classes, which is an extremely humbling experience, and I suck at it. So I think I, it, I was very fortunate to be working with people from the get-go, really talented developers like Patrick, my co-founder, Nick, now our CTO, Martin, all people that I, I had worked with in the past and really trusted. And I think that part is so important, just trusting each other and believing in each other because we all, we all needed that, especially me from a tech standpoint. There's, I can dream up what I would hope it can do, but you know, that only gets it 1% of the way there. <laughs> the rest that really matters is talented people to make it happen and make it better than you could have dreamed it originally. And, and tell me, Alon, you mentioned that you were sitting in the office, they were playing this game and you thought, here's an opportunity here. So from the time that idea came to you to when you actually went out on your own with your partner, what did that look like? Did you work on a part-time basis first in the background while retaining a full-time job? Or did you say, you know what, I'm so committed to this. I'm going to throw in the towel and we're going to go head on. Yeah. That's like every battle for every startup founder. When do I go all in? And when do I side hustle this thing? Yeah, that's a great question. Yeah, we were working on it on the side for, I would say, six, seven months. So I had my full-time job, was working on it on nights, weekends, when we could squeeze time in. And I think the moment when I decided to quit was when we raised a bit of friends and family. And in retrospect, I am optimistic and enthusiastic. To me, that was a signal like, okay, we have enough to, to give this a go. I was so wrong. I was so wrong. We did not have enough. <laughs> I thought we did. We did, <laughs> but you know, it was enough for to bring on a few more developers to start building the team. I also made the huge mistake of not paying myself because I invested in the company myself. And at the time, it did not make sense to me to just take that money back out. That was tremendously unsustainable, but yeah, one of the, one of the many mistakes I've learned. So he, yeah, we raised a bit of, from friends and family decided, I, I decided to move from New York to Mexico for a bunch of reasons. One, because we were building for a Spanish speaking audience and two, the cost of living and building a team is one eighth the price of what it would have been if I had stayed in New York. So all of that just got it going. I couldn't keep my full-time job in New York, nor did I want to at that point. I was so excited about what we were building and spending so much time on it that the job just felt like, you know, that, yeah, the income was nice, but the rest wasn't sustainable. And you said that you went out to, you got a bit of investment from friends and family. Was that a hard sell? Mm -hmm. And two questions, was that a hard sell? And secondly, how important was that in terms of your journey? It, it's a really great question. So it was 
not a hard sell in that what ended up being, I pitched to tons of different types of investors. I was really naive about that process. And if and when I do it again, it'll look extremely different. Uh, but at the time, all of our investors came through conversations where I wasn't formally pitching them. They had heard about what I was doing and maybe I got in touch with them for advice. One friend had built a company focused on the Spanish speaking market and I, I genuinely just wanted his advice. And he ended up becoming one of our investors, which was a huge compliment. But at the time, the conversation started because I wanted his help, not necessarily his money or not his money. I didn't even know that he was an investor. So I think that was really interesting. The rest were mostly friends of myself or Norby, my co-founder, who had heard about what we were working on and were excited and supportive. I think a small percentage would have invested. I don't know. I can't, I don't want to speak for them, but just because they believed in us as people, probably more so than the specific idea we were working on, which is a huge compliment. And I don't take that lightly. And in any way, shape, or form. And I think because these were friends and family, it felt it, like there was even more reason to really go out there and make it happen, not just a professional investor that is used to losing money all the time. That, They're making it. But, that's a yeah. good point, man. I've never been able to raise money from friends and family. There's an emotional barrier that I can't get past. I'll make a thousand phone calls to strangers and I can't ask a friend or family for, I don't know what it is. Maybe the pressure of that money is a lot bigger to me mentally than a stranger who we move in for the best of intent, but God forbid something doesn't work out. Okay. We both take, took a risk, but I don't see you at every Christmas party. And I don't, you don't know my kids like that. You know what I mean? And so the friends and family round is really interesting, but I want to ask a little question about humans because so much of like entrepreneurship is around the business and the pitch and the blend, the revenue model, but it really just comes down to finding the right bunch of humans that vibe with what you're doing. And partnership is like getting married. And I've got a new startup now where I've got two partners for the very first time this early in the game and I've never had partners this early in the game. It's always been like four years, five years later. How did you guys find the click and for people coming into the game for the first time, does it always have to be equal? Does everything, everybody's equal or how did you put that ecosystem together? It's a great point. The business would be nothing without my co-founders and the people that are building it. I got really lucky initially Patrick. My co-founder and I started working on this together with no real concept of, okay, we're going to build this company and go raise a bunch of money and what have you. And we both just decided this was a great idea. We both want to pursue it. Let's see where it goes. And then to a similar point of just getting advice and then looking for advice and then getting something much better. I got in touch with Norby, who is a creative director at a huge Hispanic marketing agency. Something we knew from the beginning was, okay, if the goal is to build something for a Spanish-speaking audience, two gringos can't do this. That's just silly. Yeah. Like, <laughs> silly and offensive. So when we got in touch with Norby, it was really just, does he know people that could potentially help us? And she's super senior and talented. And when we first shared the idea with him, he just... He came back and he, look, I don't want to just give you some advice. I want to build this with you. 
We're like, okay, great. <laughs> and I think I was so lucky because I've heard so many co-founder stories that you're right. It's a marriage. This is a really important decision. And I think we all at the beginning trusted our gut on each other and the general concept. And we weren't all, it wasn't a third, a third, a third. And Norby at the time was yeah, running his own agency. And so he knew he would dedicate time, but not 100% of his time to this. And also we factored in who was putting money, who wasn't. And so we just kind of decided from the get-go based on those factors, what percentages could look like. And the goal from all of us would be, let's be as fair as possible to, to each other. Because you and I are starting a business together. And we're both going to spend the exact amount of time on it a week. I think that should be 50-50. Just, I've heard of partners that was like, well, it was originally my idea. So I'm going to have 51% and you can have 49. Like, screw that. No, but I, just, <laughs> I don't know. But, but on our case, we, yeah, we, we just decided on certain amounts. And then when Norby got more involved, he got more equity. And I was very happy for that scenario to be the case. Meant too was he really believed in what we were building and his involvement was in, invaluable. But yeah, these people, I think the underlying thing is just a lot of respect and trust for each other. No, that's a great. And having fun. Like, yeah. And I think folks that listening to this that are in the tech side of the startups, they tend to only focus on the short term. Like you're a developer, you got 10 hours a day. I'm the sales and marketing person. I only do three hours a day. Are we? But that's where it's a short-term partnership thinking versus what you're explaining, mm -hmm. which is short-term hours could be different based on what the business is today. But in the long-term, are we thinking like equal partners? So that's a great way to position it. Just on the, on the co-founder side of things, you mentioned respect and trust. Was that respect and trust even more important than the technical skills that they brought to the party? I think so. Yeah. You can... You can hire and fill in the space for certain technical skills or any skill that's needed to complement the strengths of the founding team. But you can't, I don't think there's anything that replaces really respecting and trusting somebody. And that can also be learned and grow. We, I had the luxury of working with Nick and Patrick as we joined on the technical side, you know, we worked on the technical side. And so I, a kind of huge advantage for just knowing what we were getting from all sides. And with Norby, we had worked together he, as my client. And so we had sort of an idea, but you know, we're lived across the country, he lives in Texas. I lived in New York. I was moving to Mexico where we were all over the place. And what was wonderful was I just kept being pleasantly surprised by everything the value, just the type of people, and you learn different things about each other when things are really hard at a startup. There was a point in COVID where I told the team, like, okay, we we had a client cancel. We don't have revenue. We, we didn't. We don't have the money we thought we would. And even people on the team that are in salaries and don't have equity said, hey, don't worry about paying this month. We'll figure it out for next month. Wow. Like my mind was blown, like my heart broke open and it was just one of those moments where I started crying because I I don't know I was just amazed at the people we had on the team and the dedication amazing that's amazing well let's move into chapter two let's move into chapter two because every business the point of it is to make money the point of it is to find a market mm -hmm. fit that allows you to demonstrate that your vision of whatever problem you're solving 
is true. So this is a chance for you to give us the pitch. Okay. This is 2022 and I'd love for you to pitch the business the way you pitch it. And then talk to us a little bit about the first like client win. What was that period like? I love hearing about how many no's before the first yes. What is that process like? Talk to us about the business and the market fit. So Dega Beta does live trivia games. And these are valuable and powerful for the folks we work with because it's so hard to capture attention. And we're doing so in a way that on average, each game people spend 20 to 30 minutes playing. And there might be 8,000 people at once playing that game. And so for our customers running these games, whether they're doing it for marketing or training, really having that undivided attention is so powerful. And then they have all this first party data to look at, okay, exactly who is playing? What are their preferences? What are they learning about them? And it creates an event. And ultimately the experience at Blipper was most of our customers would want to work with a new technology, this AR, because they wanted a new kind of engagement with their audience. You know, the media landscape is changing. I don't need to tell you guys that. And the way we're interacting is changing dramatically. And so I think one of the driving factors for starting the business in the first place was seeing how companies were spending hundreds of thousands of dollars, if not millions, trying to capture attention. And they were spending them, in our case, on these augmented reality experiences that were beautiful and great, but at the same time, at best, captured about two, three minutes of your attention. Right. Versus, and they took months to create, versus something like this, you could go live with a game, we can make it super customizable, so it's hyper-relevant, whether it's for soccer fans or training for a company that just acquired a new one and they want everyone to feel like they're together. You know, so I love how flexible it is also. So when we were building it initially, we were building a platform for general the general audience to participate with the view of making money by selling ads. It's like you build it, you have you know, hundreds of thousands of people playing this game at once. It's like a commercial. That's what a TV commercial is. You just want to get in front of people, an audience. And we were originally pitching this to different agencies and brands by showing them what we were building. And quite often in those conversations, the first question was always, okay, well, how many people do you have? And we're like, well, no, none. <laughs> we haven't actually built this thing yet. And so again, that was a little backwards. But what we learned in those conversations was that this, we were building a tool that was super valuable for brands on its own, even without the audience. And so sometimes a few times or the folks in the room, whether it was an ad agency or a brand would ask, okay, that's cool, but can I just have it for myself? Mm. Uh, that was an early indicator of something we were thinking of long-term. Let's build this for ourselves. Let's be the guinea pigs, work out the kinks, and then create a platform to allow anyone to do this. That second idea became the first most important thing we were building when Facebook launched what we were building. Uh, um, so yeah. Facebook launched these live trivia games. I think the week we got approved in the app store. So as soon as we were live, Facebook started running these live interactive games and they obviously have I think they have 80 plus percent market penetration 
and it's free for most telco users in Mexico. So we weren't competing on money, audience, I mean, anything. But what we could do was create this platform as a service for our customers. So we decided to focus on that. And uh, and we talked to, again, we're continuing to talk to you. And I think in Mexico, something else that was challenging just about being in a new market, nobody ever says no. You go to a meeting, you think they're so excited. They're for sure going to work with you. And you never hear from them again. They're just too nice to say no. It's very Minnesotan too. I'm from Minnesota, so <laughs> not completely used to it, but I used to leave meetings like, oh, yes, like Kia, they're on board. They're going to give out free cars for all these games. Great. Go to lunch. Be so excited. Have a beer and celebrate. No, like nothing ever happens with Kia. Not. Even though we spent a solid like year talking to them. So I think I don't, I didn't count, but I will and let you know. But I think for the first, ah, the first year, pretty much we had a bunch of pilots and those were wins. So brands like Anheuser-Busch getting excited about this, but not wanting to pay and us saying yes anyways, because having that as a case study was more valuable than, than that. So, so we did a bunch of pilots with really great, with a, a bunch, a good handful of pilots with a few great brands. And then got to a point where like, all right, like we can't, we're going to kill ourselves if we keep doing this for no revenue. And one of the very first conversations we'd had was with Coca-Cola. And this is again, props to my co-founder, Norby, like he would not give up. We did not give up with Coca-Cola. They were interested, they were excited, and they were eventually our first paying customer. And it's, yeah, we were, that was, that was a good day. That was a day. But a year and a half into the business by now, like you got a year and a yeah. half pocket, close to two years. Yeah. Year and a half. They finally said yes, which meant, and the yes, again, like things didn't move as quickly as we would have liked them to, but yeah, like, again, like major validation. And I, that was tremendously helpful in talking to other brands because, you know, if Coca-Cola yeah. says yes, that's a major stamp of approval. But again, that doesn't guarantee anything else, but yes, mostly no's and knocking on a lot of doors. Like my background is sales. So I can handle that, but it's a very different feeling selling for a company you work for and versus my own company. And I'm trying to like narrow that gap because before when I was working for a tech company, anything else, someone says no, it's like, all right, fine. You're lost. Moving on. Somebody says no to my company. I'm like, why do you hate me? Hello, <laughs> like, you So you mentioned more personal. Alana, you mentioned that Coca-Cola was your first paying client and that was about a year and a half in, right? From the time that you actually, from inception to that really first paying client, obviously, I know you had some investment and things like that, but cash flow must have been difficult. Relationships must have been strained during that time. And how did you navigate through that period? It was stressful. Uh, and I think the initial investment allowed us to build the product, which was the app that we built, which we eventually ended up scrapping entirely because we decided to go web-based for oh. a lot of reasons. So exactly. So to add insult to injury, it felt like we had kind of spent everything we had raised on something we couldn't, we weren't using anymore. But at the same time, it forced us to be really resourceful 
which is painful, but I think there are some benefits to that. We were no longer building things that we weren't super confident that we needed. Again, that wasn't perfect. There were mistakes made, but it forced us to really look at how we had built everything, why we were building everything. We would dream up roadmaps, but then scrap 100% of the features that we didn't, that weren't required for a customer. And it also forced us to really find those customers that were going to use it. And I think the luxury of that was not building things that we didn't require anymore. So I think there are major pros and cons. The other con is my CTO, Nick and I, we had taken on consulting projects. We've done that a handful of times to just be able to keep going. Uh, we, yeah, forced ourselves to be very lean. And yeah, sorry. You know, it's what you were sharing about having side consulting gigs. There's such a negative connotation for that when I speak to founders, where there's this bravado, all in, broke mindset. I'm like, why? If you can free up a bit of your time, two, three hours, we're in a remote world today where you could moonlight with something that you're really good at that doesn't take you a lot of effort, right? Then you supplement some level of income and you're still 100% focused on what you're trying to build and there's no shame in it. And there's this weird line in the sand. I'm an entrepreneur. This is what I do. And then in hindsight, you could have had a little side gig and gave yourself more breathing Absolutely. And I think that was a hard call. It felt like failure to take on another project, but it, but it wasn't. And in hindsight, I think all tides rise. There's it, the side projects exposed us to other types of things and people that eventually were very interested in what we were building over here. So yeah, I think there's so much noise about from startups about raising millions and millions of dollars just from an idea on a napkin. And like, that's awesome for the people that can do that. Yay. Like, good for you. But also, like, I'm not jealous in some ways because that's a lot of pressure. You raise tens of millions of dollars, you better build a unicorn or something close to it. So versus we raise a very small amount or nothing. Like you could eventually sell this business down the line or keep operating. It's a wonderful lifestyle business. Like I think it was, I didn't have those things in mind when we started this because all the models we saw were okay. You start a company, you raise a bunch of money. You like it, but we did not follow that trajectory. Um, the and that's okay. incubator, Y Combinator, Blueprint. Come in with a pitch deck. We believe in you. Here's some money. Here's 12 weeks of entrepreneurship programming. And then, yeah. oh, let's get into the final segment, which is about you. I've known you from the New York days and an account executive, very smart with the tech side of things, knows how to position partners. How much of that skill gave you a bit of a rocket launch into this new thing? And what are some of the other areas where you had to develop as a person to be able to do what you're doing today? Look back three years ago, and what's that, Alana, like to this OG sitting in Mexico running this company? Hey, first of all, thank you. I appreciate that perspective. I think what was helpful about the company I was working at before was exactly that. How do you take something totally new, make it relevant to somebody? Like, you know, what these technical things, you know, whether it's, augmented reality or live stream, like, sure, great. These are tools to accomplish a goal. And that's what I find super fun about what I was doing and what we are doing with Bakeraysa. 
less about the games, more about what it can accomplish. For me personally, I don't know. In many ways, I feel like I'm the same person, but I also feel 20 years older. I'm not. It wasn't that long ago. I think some of the most challenging things were on the admin side. The first time I had seen a cap table was when I made my own. And the learning curve on that is just horrible. Like I talked to, I talked to so many lawyers, which at one time for a week, it was interesting and fun, but it's like they had different models. Like you pay us nothing, but then once you raise, we take a percentage. And I'm like, what? <laughs> like all of this felt really intimidating. And I think the requirement of not being the lawyer and HR and accounting and finance, but having enough to feel confident you're, you're, go, you're doing the right thing is really hard. And I think a lot of that are just, yeah, it requires an attention and a skill that was a very new muscle for me. Let's just say that. Uh, so in one hand, it was super fun to learn. On the other, exhausting just the amount I still yeah still need to get back to my accountant on a large handful of things but so so that I think the other difference is that or the other I guess change from you know New York to now is just like optimism I think founders by definition are optimistic and we all know the stats we, most startups fail. So just by the act of starting your own business you're markedly like optimistic and I think the other piece is resilience. When you get no's a hundred thousands of times from investors, from people you're selling to, like it, yeah, that's resilience. But, you know, not only the no's, just the challenges of building something. And another big lesson is probably patience. What took a few days to set everything up in the U.S. took about six, seven months in Mexico my mind was going to explode but you know just with with bureaucracy but yeah those are those are the biggest lessons and perspective like the i have so much respect for founders of any sort whether it is your coffee shop big tech company just building something and taking all of that responsibility on is a big deal it's super fun it's super rewarding but ultimately when the buck stops at you it's hard well, sit on a you, You've spoken about perspective. You've spoken about resilience. You've spoken about all those things. If you now had a group of young entrepreneurs sitting in front of you and you had to put together a curriculum or a program or something like that, what are those core areas that you think you would cover in your curriculum to give them the tools that they need to actually go out there and start a little business for themselves? I think the first thing in the curriculum would be building something that I have very few, I don't know, substitutes for just that, for trying it, perhaps in a way that you know, doesn't mean they might fail out of school or you know, whatever, lose their first job if that's the position they're in. But I think the challenge of creating something and getting someone to pay for it is huge. And you learn so much from that. And and even users, maybe it's not that somebody's going to pay for it, but creating something that somebody else values there is huge because you could create decks till you're blue in the face. I hate them. Sure, that's great. That's beautiful. What a nice idea. But actually putting something out into the world, I, is, I don't think there's a replacement for that experience. 
I think the other thing, like, in that curriculum would simply be talking to people, talking to other founders, to people that have failed, to people that have succeeded, hearing your honest story about that. I, in so many points, I thought we were going to disappear. We're still here. And that's an accomplishment of itself. Yay. <laughs> so clearly very excited about that. But yeah, just hearing stories, I think what you guys are building with this podcast is amazing. Obviously, there's incredible content on how I built this. They also have the very human side of what it is to, to build what they've created. It's a structure that's missing. That's what we found with this particular podcast. Our vision anyways is there's so many people that's got a blueprint for starting a business. And then we wait at the end and go, oh, you're burning out. Let me teach you some mental health tips and tricks and whatever. But let's not be the pill at the end. Let's figure out how to give them some good habits along the way. So the last question for the chat is, do you have these kind of daily mental health, spiritual practice? Are you a meditator? Do you zone into the work mode? What is that practice like for you? I do meditate. I wouldn't say it's daily. I'd say it's more like weekly at best. I think uh, my mom is an industrial psychologist, which is a psychologist of the workplace. And she has a really interesting perspective and asked the other day, what do you do to just relax or calm down? And I think those things are so, so important. I think the number one piece is surrounding myself with people I love and respect. Yeah. Starting something is lonely. If you have friends that are also building things or if you don't, go find them because they'll understand in ways that other people might not. And you learn a ton from each other. But I think I just, yeah, a big way to unwind is just by being around great people. And trying to think of other ones. I read a lot. Started cooking a lot in COVID. I don't know. <laughs> just paying attention to you know, the things that doing as much as you can of the things that you don't realize time is passing. And it's not just in obviously like working great. That's one area for sure. But yeah, making sure you make time for, yeah. for the rest. I'm on the same schedule as you. Once a week has been my meditating capacity. And if I try to do it any more than that, it's just, I'm not there yet. It's just too noisy. Yeah. It's too distracting. But, you know, at least once a week. If What else do you do? I DJ. That's you what you have a family. You DJ. Okay. You know, for me, like the, the noise of the music actually is calming. It's strange. It's the same way. Like I'm an urban city guy. The traffic is actually calming versus the silence of a cottage or a trip somewhere. I'm like, no, nah, give me urban city. Give me a club. Give me some turntables. And I'm actually meditating at that moment. Yeah. yeah no, I'm glad you're sharing. I hear about it all the time. Like anybody I speak to that's in that world already, you got to meditate more, calm your brain down, be still. I'm like, I am when I'm remixing. <laughs> I don't know. That makes sense. Dion, how about you? Me, I sketch very badly. I train every day and I enjoy sitting with the book. Taking, I take 10 minutes a day and just read. And I don't read, I must actually, I read nonfiction. So things that I can just let my mind go. And that's what I do. But I would like to close off the session with one final, if you were to think of this, the one quote, the one book, the one inspirational phrase, the one ethos that means the most to you, what would that be? The first thing that comes to mind is something my dad said. Uh, and I don't think he made this up, but according to me at age four, he did. 
is whether you think you can or you think you can't, you're absolutely right. And I think, especially when you're facing all of these unknown challenges, which I think when you're starting a company is pretty much an every day, if not hour kind of thing. Uh, but yeah, just believe that you can figure it out and hopefully you will. Or maybe you won't, but that's okay too. Year One is hosted by Dion Kloppers and Suthish Bala and does not constitute a recommendation for any organization, product, or service. It is engineered by Bluemex. For more Year One content subscribe where you get your podcasts and visit Bluemex.io to join us on Discord.